Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Martin Gurry, a former CIA analyst. He is the author of a recent book called The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium. He had an essay out in a recent issue of City Journal entitled The Elite Panic of 2022 that I recommend to everyone on the City Journal website. It struck me uh, as, as something that explained a lot in what we see out in, the, out in the public political space these days. Uh, the, the essay has a long subtitle that refers to, quote, startling developments that, quote, threaten progressives' grip on power. This is our subject today. Welcome, Mr. Gurry. Welcome, Mark. Happy to be here. All right. Well, first general question. When you say elites, when we talk about the elites, whom do we mean? Right. I, I have been <clears throat> very careful about my definitions. If you read <clears throat> my book, The Revolt to the Public, they're more or less extensively dealt with there. But simply, when I talk about elites, I mean the people who are in charge of the institutions that make modern life possible. And that is not just government, it's not just politics, but it's, for example, business, it's media, it's um, academia, it's the nonprofits, it's the scientific establishment. That's who the elites are. And they seem ever more different than, than the rest of us. We'll, 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 get into, we'll get into that. But uh, when we talk about these people who manage great institutions, uh, the rest of us instantly think of the super powerful. Uh, most people think of those as people near or at the top. And historically, those figures have not been progressives. Correct, or at least they've not been perceived as progressive left-wing types. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know who you're referring to exactly. I, I do think that what has happened is a fairly recent development. It's something, it's something of the last few years. Now, you, you, you really, you really do align the elite today, uh, in most ways, with progressive, progressivist aims. Uh, even though they want to sustain their own status, you know, to hold on to power themselves and, and to make themselves very powerful, they, they, they do count as progressives. What are the main features of elite progressivism as opposed to the old working class progressivism that we saw in the late 19th, early 20th century? Yeah, it's not an even though, it's a therefore, okay? Um, the The elites and their institutions have suffered a, just a, a, a terrible hemorrhage of authority. Uh, in the olden days, when you were elected president, just the fact that you were elected won you a lot of trust. 
Today, you get elected president, and just by the fact that you're elected, probably more than half of the population thinks you're about to you know, perpetrate some swindle, okay? <laughs> yeah. So uh, the, the kinds of, um, of, uh, of change, the kinds of policies, the kinds of behaviors that the elites in the olden days could, could um, sort of engage in by persuasion, by authority, those are gone. However, there's something about what I call the cult of uh, identity, because progressivism is kind of a squishy word. It's a cult. It's a cult of identity. And what the cult of identity says is you are not allowed to um, deviate from these dogmas, right? If you do, you will be hounded online. You may lose your job. Your reputation will be tattered. So it's a trade. The elites have made a very strange trade, a Faustian bargain, let's call it, in which they have lost authority, but they want control. They want that, that online mob to help them control. Uh, so it, it's um, essentially a very self-interested move. You know, is, is it disorienting to a lot of older Americans who have seen, you know, figures in authority of the past stand up and have authority? They, they speak with authority. They carry authority in their person. But then they look and they see episodes, say, where college presidents are so intimidated by a bunch of angry 20-year-olds that we see politicians being so conciliatory or indulgent even to the, the, the crowds, the mobs here. Uh, is that a big part of the confusion that, again, a lot of older Americans are, are undergoing today? Yeah, I don't like to think. I myself, I'm far from a young person. You were talking to about boomers before. I am <laughs> definitely a boomer. Um, I... But I, don't, I think the confusion is very widespread. I think the confusion does not stop with uh, the people with white hair or, or no hair like me. Um, so I, I, I think there, there is a, a, a transition away from what Mark Yuval called being the institutions being formative. In other words, if you were Walter Cronkite, you were formed by CBS News and you spoke a certain way and you looked a certain way and you were expected to behave and use certain words, um, to them being performative. Once you have no authority and all you have is the, the online mob to more or less keep people in control, then you use these institutions at your own personal stage to strut in. Right. Um, and I think we have an elite class that is, yeah, when you look back on time uh, and even, you know, not necessarily the, the great president, but say the next tier down, the JFKs, the LBJs. Right. Um, these were people of, of serious heft. These were people who tried to do what government was supposed to do. There was they were real about government. There's a great degree of unreality about the mm. way our elites behave. So the confusion is, is natural because we're expecting people to, to actually de behave as, for example, the head of a of a, a corporation like Coca-Cola and not as some sort of virtue signaling thing where they, you know, move the force, help to force the uh, all-star game out of Atlanta, Georgia, where Coca-Cola is headquartered because they don't like a certain political law. You know, I think what you just said there, the, the, the performative, the unreality, the, the, I mean, would you go as so far as the fakery, phoniness, would you go that far? Oh, of course. I mean, <laughs> Joe Biden, look at Joe Biden. I mean, uh, I, I, among the, the few comforting things in, in my life as I look over the political environment is 
okay, I'm not a young man, but Joe Biden is older than I am, okay? And he has no clue about the words he is uttering. You look back into his personal career, he never has had. I mean, he's a man who uh, plagiarized uh, other people uh, shamelessly and uh, invented events about his own life that weren't the case and so forth. But I mean, now he's that and he's old and doddering, right? So he is a complete phony. He is using words that, that talk about equity and, and progressivism and, and uh, gender fluidity, all these things. He has no clue what they mean. And I think a great many of the people involved who are of a certain age and maybe many who are not, uh, have no idea what they mean. As in every religion, every established church, there are words you have to say when you are, have been gathered in, in the pews. Now, I, I get the sense that a lot of people, well, they don't care about that. They, they're they fine that Joe Biden doesn't know really what he's talking about when he when he talks about, you know, the, the these current identity politics issues. They're fine with that as long as he performs properly. Is that correct? I no, I think that's incorrect. I think there are many, many people who don't don't believe that outcomes, uh, per such as such matter as much as the performative part. And in other words, if you get to the outcome by being non-progressive and or violating the doctrines of identity, you'll get slammed. It doesn't really matter. I mean. Um, among the many things, I mean, Donald Trump, let put it on the table, was not my favorite politician, all right? But, of course, the things that were heaped on Trump, he could do no right. Uh, so mm-hmm. Donald Trump was responsible for Operation Warp Speed. That was happened under his watch, all right? So he actually did the job the government was supposed to do. I'm waiting for credit to accrue to him yet. It's not going to happen because it no. was Donald Trump. You know, you, you refer in your essay uh, to a decision that came down regarding masks, a judicial decision regarding masks on airplanes. Uh, what was that decision and how, how, how was that decision received? Right. That's part of the weirdness that you're talking about, which is things that seem to have no connection to politics become massively ideological and politicized. And I actually saw a tweet once by somebody, it was kind of the scales fell from my eyes when I read this. Uh, somebody who was saying, I'm glad to wear a mask because even though it's inconvenient, nobody will ever confuse me with a conservative. And I'm going, that, huh. that's the strangest thing I ever read, okay? Well, there was this judge, I forgot her name now, who um, happened to be young and happened to be a Trump appointee, but she, for technical reasons, decided that the mask mandates uh, were not legal. And what we had was this howl of horror, this howl of horror. Number one, this wasn't really law. This woman was not qualified to interpret because why? Well, she was young. She was like 35, okay? And number two, she was Trump appointed. Therefore, everything she said and did was tainted. Um, But the most bizarre thing was, of course, that that the sense that there must have been something deeper than that. And when you looked into it, uh, of course, COVID was the moment when the institutions and the elites regained a sort of control over the rest of us because mm. the public had been very feisty and very rebellious up until then, but the pandemic terrified us. And the fact that the elites have always been saying, we're the experts, trust us. We were going, no, you're not, and no, we don't. But suddenly we were scared for our lives and we wanted to believe them. And the series of mandates that came down from COVID were symbolic to the elites of that regaining of control. Hmm. And the legal um, 
uh, end of the mask mandate was symbolic to the elites uh, of uh, the end of that control. And if you read what Fauci said about it, you know, Fauci said, this is some judge that has no knowledge. So there were certain people who are entitled to make decisions. There are these platonic guardians who know and know yeah. best. Uh, yeah. And she was not one of them. She was not one of them. She, had, she should not have been allowed to make that call. She had no science. So I think there was a, a deeper subtext to the mask uh, question, which if looked just on its own was bizarre. Who cares? Uh, Everybody was happy to get rid of the masks. Yeah, you 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 say uh, in the essay that the it, it the crisis allowed the quote uh, converted the public sphere of infection into a principle of elite authority, which, as you say, was it was a kind of restoration. And and you use an interesting word here. Uh, Judge Mizell had crashed an exclusive party reserved for people of higher caste. Now, caste is 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 a loaded term. There, it's it's not really an overtly political term, right? I mean, what what does the word caste imply here? Well, of course, the original uh, sense of it had to do with um, Indian society, where by religion, not just this is not a question of uh, of uh, political choice but of cosmic necessity, there are several groups called castes, each of which have a place in the hierarchy. At the top are the Brahmins, at the very, very, very bottom, or even outside the whole system, are the outcasts um, uh, that cannot be changed. I think castes in, in, uh, in the United States today are fundamentally the political system. In other words, the cult of identity, it's insofar as it's something more than an incoherent sort of like um, conflict generation machine, um, is believes that that justice, for example, is 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 caste bound. In other words, certain groups deserve certain kinds of justice, but for the same the same situation, different groups deserve different kinds of justice. So, um, if you're white, for example, you get one kind. If you're black, you get another. Uh, so caste actually is essential to the cult of, uh, of authority. I'm very un-American to me, honestly. Yeah. Uh, I'm very new and different. I, I grew up in the 60s. Uh, I'm not a young guy, like I said. And at that time, the whole thrust of, of uh, all that change was, why are we pretending that we're so different when really we're all citizens of the same country? Hmm. You, you, you referred a moment ago to... Uh, that loss of of authority for a time, you say that uh, you refer to the public habit of obedience that had gone missing during the Trump years. Was the election of Trump a primarily an expression of the the revolt of the public? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think I think. Uh, the 2010s was a decade of just explosive and eruptive uh, change from below. Uh, the number of, of revolts, uh, I mean, by 2019, the year 2019 alone, I, I, I could cite you at least at least 25 major street revolts all over all around the world. Um, the public, essentially empowered and networked by by the, the digital dispensation. Uh, was angry with the elites and wanted change. Uh, that had been happening all along. What the election of Trump did was it alerted the elites that something 
very dreadful for them was happening. <laughs> uh, populism, which is what a word I don't particularly like, populism is an elite word that basically says that there are things that are popular that shouldn't be, okay? Uh, and uh, so Trump right. was of a class of person that you might call populist who took this anti-elite um, fervor in the public and basically used it for his own political ends, right? So it was very much about the revolt of the public. Without that, Trump, I mean, a person like Trump, who by past uh, criteria would not have been even considered presidential material, uh, the, and in fact, that was probably why he got elected. It was he was different from everybody else. Uh, he would not have been. He would not have been elected. Yeah. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Uh, you, you refer to the, the whole decade of the 2010s. I don't think you've referred to this in your essay, but was the Tea Party revolt of 2010, was that the first one, the first expression of this? Would you draw a continuity between that and the election of Trump? It's a funny thing, right? If you were to ask me what the first one that seemed to me an effective, well, the very first one, of course, was, was, was the Arab Spring. And that, that was a tremendous disruption and did not end well. It's a, it's a, it has become a misnomer. We shouldn't call it the Arab Spring, but the tag stuck. Uh, mm. In the United States, interestingly, the first um, evidence of it, I would say, was the election of Barack Obama. Barack Obama mm. was very much like Donald Trump. He, was, uh, he took on the Democratic establishment, who, which was embodied by guess who, uh, you know Hillary Clinton, and mm. uh, and then he took on the Republican establishment. Uh, so he was an anti-establishment figure, and he dealt with his presidency from a very anti-establishment sense, very differently from Trump, but still never as part of the establishment. He has now since become very established establishmentarian and everything he says right now it you can you can put it in the mouth of any elite that is the same but as a politician he won because he exploited the revolt of the public and yeah mm. the tea party definitely was the exact same thing they had, they, every reaction uh triggers a reaction so that was a reaction to obama and it was the foundation of on the other side of, of, of the spectrum of of the revolt of the public it had many of the same features as all the other revolts, including the fact that it was very incoherent. And in the end, although it elected a number of individuals, uh, uh, it, it kind of you know, spiraled away into not much of an effect. You speak of Barack Obama in your essay. You write three days after the mask mandate was struck down in, in that decision that you begin with. On April 21st, Barack Obama delivered the bad news about disinformation to a Stanford University forum on the subject. Uh, disinformation, that became uh, a keyword in uh, last year. Uh, how does the whole disinformation come into play here? Uh, how does it, how does a lead authority seize upon that? I mean, that's just amazing to me. It's, it's an amazing to me, uh, amazing development where 
anything that, that the elites, first of all, let's say it, are, they're not just people in an institu in institutions, okay? They are characterized by certain ideas. They are remarkably, and, and you can go, I can go to a conference in France, I can go to a conference in Britain, I can go to a conference somewhere in the United States, and obviously the conferences are not paid by the public, they're paid by the elites. So I'm surrounded by elites and they're saying the same damn things. So there is a, a kind of a conformism to this. And one of them, uh, one of the recent ways in which uh, the elites have sought to impose control has been by using words like disinformation or conspiracy theory or Russian hacking, right? Um, and um, it began with COVID and, you know, Biden said people were being killed. That's literal words with people are dying because of social media. The social media people didn't want to kill anybody, so they started to obey uh, what the government was telling them. If you look at the Twitter files, Twitter files I think every American citizen should look at, is the government telling information outlets what content they should use and what content they should, they should kill, which people they should highlight and which people they should mute. All right, this is the government doing this, okay? Um, and the word disinformation, which I, as a former CIA uh, analyst, can tell you, you know, made the rounds of that organization uh, and, and, you know, had certain meanings, um, is simply a weapon, a rhetorical weapon to silence the opinions that the elites don't like. It's that simple. Uh, you know, it, it, material has come out about the number of ex-intelligence people who work in, in the social media agencies, including Twitter. Did the did the exposure of the Twitter files, the extent of the influence and pressure coming out of the government, did that surprise you? No, it shocked me. It, I mean, it shocked me. I don't, I don't want to keep pounding about how old I am, but you know, in my long life, I have never seen anything like this. I don't think, I don't think either the gigantic uproar that happened. You know, that's, that was that my my City Journal article about the panic uh, that happened. The panic that happened when Musk said, "I want to. I think I want to buy Twitter," uh, <laughs> and people started saying, "We don't believe in in uh, free speech." I mean, people started saying that out loud. We don't believe free speech is bad for democracy. People are literally using those words. I have never seen that happen. I have never seen, as has come out in Twitter files, um, a moment where the government. I mean, you have to go back to maybe Woodrow Wilson. And uh, his very, very noxious wartime uh, censorship before you get to a point where the government can dictate to the information um, platforms what they're allowed to say or what they're not allowed to say. I have, that never has happened in peacetime in the United States that I'm aware of, certainly not in my lifetime. You, you characterize their sense of democracy as, quote, the rule of the righteous. I mean, do, do they... They're not cynical. They genuinely believe that they are the anointed ones, that they're the ones who should be in charge because, what, they're the smartest ones, they're the most responsible, they're the most generous and, and open and tolerant. Is that the mindset of these people? Some, I think. I think just as many really are cynical and, and okay. just pre pretend, pretend that that's what they want to be. It's a, it's, it's a good gig, right? It's a great gig. And, and, and they... Uh, they define democracy as as basically the triumph of the elites. Anybody else is a fascist or a semi-fascist or authoritarian or you know um, filled with disinformation and so forth. Um, they um, they 
can't they, they can't get around the fact that um, the public is doesn't love them, but they feel that they can control <laughs> that by by um, pressuring other elites that own all the other institutions of information to muffling opinions they don't like. You know, when when you see an elite step out of line, like 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 Musk buying Twitter, as you said, the the wave, the tidal wave of response in all different places is extraordinary, but it's it's not coordinated. We're not we're not talking about sort of a centralized uh, uh, effort with directions coming out of, you know, com- coming out of Moscow or, or you know, the, the way part the party line. It's that people just know the elite has just have they been acculturated so narrowly in certain ways. They've gone through the institution. They've been trained. And so they know what to how to respond. They know what to say. And you said that when you go to these different places, they all talk in the same way. They say the same things. They believe the same things. It's uh, a power. It's it's the power of shared dogma. I mean, they. Um, it's a it's a very narrow cult. Uh, you're not allowed uh, to step out. In, at least the way you talk, then if you're in the lead, you can do whatever you want, but you certainly use the right words. Um, and yeah, I don't think there's a vast um, left-wing conspiracy, and I'll tell you why. They're not smart enough. You look at this crowd, and they're just not competent enough to, to put a conspiracy together. I mean, look it, at Biden. It, it, it is remarkable. When you look at the leadership, I mean, is, is Nancy Pelosi a brilliant uh, individual? Is she even a good politician? Uh, uh, I... I I find that I, I mean our president, our vice president, his cabinet. These do not look like competent figures. At simply, simply the the bare act of governing, they're not very good at it. I mean, if they were better, would would we see as much uh, as much of the revolt of the public? Well, here's the thing: to be effective, you need to have a fairly good grasp on reality, and the whole point of the cult of identity is that the world exists inside your head and you want to impose that very foggy world inside your head on the real world. So unfortunately, the real world is very hard and unyielding. So if you think that you're going to gain glory as a peacemaker by withdrawing from Afghanistan, for example, what you get instead is a horrible, horrible, tragic disaster that is rolling on still to this day. Nobody talks about it because, of course, you know, the elites band together about this, but it's a rolling disaster, disaster for women, a disaster for the people who helped us, who basically staked their lives on helping the United States to modernize that country, and we abandoned them, and God knows what's happened to them, right? But in their in their minds, it was all a question of we're going to march out, flags flying, everybody's going to applaud, peace will reign. <laughs> That's a very different role from the one that actually exists. Uh, in, indeed, and, you know, the mistakes... The mistakes keep, keep piling up, but one, uh, for example, the Afghanistan, you know, w- withdrawal. The mistakes keep piling up, but one, one doesn't see a lot of course correction being done by by progressives in in the elite. I mean, the Twitter files has that changed behavior? The exposure of those Twitter files has that changed behavior at all that you see? Anything? Uh, any corrigibility going on? There has been. There has been no exposure, first of all. How do you deal with something like Twitter files? You don't talk about it. 
it is not talked about. All right, so the New York Times has barely touched the subject, barely touched the subject, and that is some some other uh, outlets have not touched it at all. And when they touch it, it's very incidental, and it's kind of like some weird thing that's happening out there, right? So um, there is no course correction when you already have the truth. That's a, that's the the, the the metaphor of the established church of identity, right? If you already have the truth, why would you have course correction? Um, as far back as Jimmy Carter, and I, I can remember that, he was a man who had also a lot of very unrealistic ideas, and his ideas came to came to disaster. But but he saw it. He corrected himself. And people tend to forget that the big, uh, for example, rearmament uh, that the country um, engaged in during the Reagan years was begun by Carter, who had seen the error of his ways. By the time you get mm. to Obama, you already have that sense of, no, I already know everything. I know everything. I've been given wisdom. So how could I correct? It's the world that is wrong. So when, for example, when, when Putin would... Um, irritate Obama, what would he say? I should change my approach to Putin? No. He would lecture Putin about how he was out of step with history. Because history was going to prove Obama right and Putin wrong, right? Somehow. And they still have that confidence in 2023 that history is with them? I mean, is it part of the, is it part of the panic that some of that confidence is crumbling? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, that's I have no way to answer that empirically, but my guess is, if you look at the people who really embrace identity, who are the very young, the Zoomer generation, um, I don't believe that they think history is on their side. I think believe that history is going to end in 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 an apocalypse, in in some catastrophe, and that the best you can do until that happens is be on the right side and basically yell at and 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 protest against uh exploiters and support victims uh but at the end will not be happy the end will be a disaster it's a very fatalistic and and um strangely pessimistic turn uh l last question martin you, you say in your essay mm -hmm. that their appetite for control is insatiable uh, there's never enough control for them. Where is this going in the next five years? Uh, I, and, and I, and I want to hold you to your prediction. And, and if you're wrong, you owe me hundred dollars. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I, I'm going to trump you because I never do predictions. I always say coming from the CIA, that was the business, that was a business model and they were always wrong. Right. So you want to be, you look like a fool, make a forecast. Well, well, um, I, I guess this is this is one of the problems with the elite, right? They think that they know where it's all going. Absolutely, and and the forecast is as follows: if trajectories continue along the same way, um, we are going to lose more and more the sense that I had when I was young, and that my children, I hope, had when they were young, but my grandchildren may not have, which is that America is this great big open frontier. This great big adventure where each of us, with our gifts and our, and our you know, troubles, is, is going to make our own way because it's, it's a big place and it's an open place and such a free place. And not knowing what, what you know, you're going to bump into, but not afraid of the future. I think we're going to see a future that's much darker, more, more dispirited, more um, limited and um, sadder. A sadder thing. And I, I listen. I I write today for my grandchildren, 
I'm old enough that if I wanted to, I could just kind of pack it up and watch baseball for the rest of my life uh, and go fishing otherwise. Uh, but I, I, I do it for my grandchildren. I want them. I mean, this is such a wonderful country. You know, I'm an immigrant. I came from Cuba. Um, it's such a wonderful country that I, I want everybody of every generation to experience the same adventure, the same, same feeling of openness that I was privileged enough to, to experience. The essay is The Elite Panic of 2022 in City Journal. And let me also mention the previous book, The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium. Martin Gurry, thank you for joining us. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.